Well, I'm not sure if you heard the news uh, this morning. There's a 30% chance of snow. <laughs> but that was in January, Kyle. <laughs> you know how many times I've did, done something like that? That's great. Well, I want to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. While you're turning there, I want to give you uh, somewhat of a challenge. I want you to imagine that you have the opportunity to, to, to meet someone that you greatly respect. And so as, as we were worshiping this morning, I, I have to confess, I was thinking about some different people that some of you might like to meet. So if, if, you're, uh, if you're a sports lover, it might be someone like uh, the great Edgar Martinez or the great Cal Ripken Jr. Or uh, how about uh, Kevin Durant of the... Golden State Warriors. Or if you're more uh, inclined to be a lover of music, maybe it's a Brad Paisley. Uh, or maybe it's Carrie Underwood. Or if you want to uh, get really creative, just imagine if you could, if you had the opportunity to meet a former president of the United States. Do you want to know who I'd want to meet? I have four. Number one, George Washington. Number two, John Adams, one of the greatest presidents of all time, Right? Number three, Abraham Lincoln. Does anyone know who the fourth one would be? My all-time favorite president, Ronald Wilson Reagan, right? So just imagine, have I, have I, have I tapped into your uh, imagination yet this morning? That you hear that on a given day, you'll have a chance to meet that person. How many of you, person, how many of you have that person in your mind? You'd want to meet that person. If you don't, think about it. And then I'm going to have you raise your hand in just a minute, okay? You have two seconds. One, two. Okay. How many of you have that person in your mind? Raise your hand. All right. And on a given day, you were told, if you show up, you get a chance to meet him. How many of you would go? I want to invite you to come to the prayer meeting. So, can I just be really, really frank? Someone say yes. Yes. Here's what happens in the evangelical church when someone announces a prayer meeting. Jerry, this, is, this will break Jerry's heart, but this is what happens. We're going to have a prayer meeting, and half of the church goes, Ah, prayer meeting again. I'm just being honest. How many of you know what I'm talking about? But this is what Jerry's inviting you to, to do and to participate in. He's inviting you to come and meet with the people of God and the sovereign God of the universe. It's amazing to me that when a prayer meeting is called, 100% of the people don't show up early, right? Because I can tell you this. If I heard that Edgar Martinez was going to be at Starbucks today at 3 o'clock, I wouldn't be watching the Super Bowl. I'd be at Starbucks at quarter to 3 to meet my hero, Edgar Martinez. Are you with me? So I want to invite you and, and just encourage you. To take this challenge that Jerry has given you to come and to pray together. Can you imagine what would happen if the whole church came? And make no mistake, don't do it to encourage Jerry, although it will encourage Jerry. It will encourage his team. But can you imagine if the whole church showed up to seek the face of God? Do you know that's how revival started in America? In all of the histories of revival, there are two things that happened. The word of God was faithfully proclaimed and people were engaged with God. And so we want to encourage you to do that. Well, let's pray together. Father, what a, a privilege it is to come before the sovereign king of the universe. And for, forgive us, forgive me, God, for becoming too casual, for neglecting the discipline and privilege of prayer. And I, I want to thank you for my friend Jerry and for the challenge that he has given the church family, the, the opportunity he's given the church family to come, to gather corporately for prayer. And so may, may many take the challenge, may a majority take the challenge. And I think of the scripture that says you have not because you ask not. And so I pray that we would all take the challenge, that we would come, that we would gather together and seek your face in prayer. Now we're excited to continue the study in this little book, the book of Jude. I ask God that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to see the, the warning that is crystal clear in this passage today, and that at the end of the day, we would be able to apply these, these very important lessons to our lives. 
God, I pray that you'd guide me, guide my words. May my words be your words so that the people of God would be encouraged and edified and challenged and equipped. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the sayings that has grown in popularity over the years in the church goes something like this. For some of you, you've never heard this before. Others of you, you've heard it like the, the droning on of a faucet. And it goes something like this. We're interested in deeds, not creeds. Deeds, not creeds. And just full disclosure, when I hear that phrase, it makes me incredibly irritated. Just full disclosure, when I hear the phrase, and I'm so sorry if it's one of your favorite phrases, but when I hear the phrase deeds, not creeds, it just, it annoys the fire out of me. The implication in this very well-motivated statement is that how we live is far superior to what we believe. The notion that deeds is more important than doctrine, you see, is simply unsustainable. To say that the way we live is far more important than theology, that just doesn't come out in the wash. It's not true. But I want to encourage you, to not go to the other extreme. You know how we've seen in the history of the church, we've gone from one extreme to another. Um, Those of you that were raised as I was in the 70s know that the church in America in the 70s grew rather legalistic, right? And many people in America would, would look at folks in the church and they just saw them as people who couldn't do the nasty nine. You remember the nasty nine? Like you couldn't smoke, you couldn't chew, you couldn't go with girls who do, you couldn't play cards, you couldn't go to the show house, you know, all those things, right? And I know across the congregation, we all have different convictions about those kinds of things. But what happened is from the 70s until now, the pendulum went from being incredibly legalistic to license. Now we're in a situation where almost anything goes and the pendulum has swung far too strong. So when I warn you about the phrase deeds, not creeds, be careful not to swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. Don't embrace the opposite error. The opposite error would be to to completely throw out deeds and to say it's all about theology. We're only interested in doctrine and study and, and going to the word of God and learn, 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 learn. And it doesn't matter how we behave. Here is the reality. It's both. It's it's creeds and it's deeds. It's what we believe and it's how we behave. Last week, we unpacked what I referred to as the apostates creed. The apostates creed. And we learned in the previous verses in the book of Jude that these apostates, what they believe became very, very important. Let me give you the summary. We learned that these apostates, these false teachers, were driven by emotion. And as I look around the the landscape of our country, I see that many so-called professing Christians are driven by emotion. That is, these false teachers relied primarily on subjective experience instead of the Word of God. May I remind you that whenever you rely on subjective experience instead of the Word of God, is you're walking down the wrong path. You're walking down a path of error. You're walking down a path of heresy. But these false teachers were not only driven by emotion, they were dominated by immorality. We learned that their, their minds were defiled. Their conscience was defiled. Their very lives and their lifestyles were defiled. And what we learned last week is when the scripture refers to something that is defiled, it's never a good thing. If your mind is defiled, your conscience is defiled, if your, if your lifestyle is defiled, that is a, a bad thing. Thirdly, we learned that these false teachers were devoted to autonomy. That is, in short, they utterly repudiated the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are professing believers all around the world this day who utterly repudiate the lordship of Jesus Christ. They say the lordship of Jesus Christ is a false addition to the gospel of grace. And I I would plead with you to understand that the lordship of Jesus Christ is at the very heart and the very center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And then finally, we learn that these apostates are devoid of devotion. Here's the bottom line. These false teachers were blasphemers. Now, the creed of the apostates led to a particular kind of a conduct, as you might imagine, that was anything but godly. And here, if, if you're a, a math wizard this morning, you'll get this. Combine an ungodly creed with an ungodly conduct, and what do you get? You have a person who is headed for eternal destruction. This noxious brew of unorthodox theology and ungodly living leads to eternal condemnation. And so here's a lesson by way of introduction. Don't let anyone ever deceive you into believing that your creed doesn't matter. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that, that thinking about biblical worldview is of little importance. Rather, it is of maximum importance. All conduct, you see, is predicated on one's creed. Listen to that carefully. All the ways that we behave are based on the things that we believe. This morning in the Veritas class that I teach, we talked about two of the recent things that have happened in our country that concern the horrible sin of abortion. And make no mistake about it, it is a grievous sin in the eyes of a holy God. But you might ask, how is it that a person can participate in that kind of a sin? The reason is because there's a a belief structure that lies under the action. A creed, a particular kind of a creed, leads to a particular kind of a deed. All conduct is predicated on our creeds, what we believe. And so this morning, the title of the message is The Apostate's Conduct and Condemnation. I want to have you come with me as we move from the Apostles' Creed in verses 8 to 11 from last week to the Apostles' conduct and finally their condemnation as we read in verses 12 to 16. We stand together for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 12, and Jude continues his discussion. He says, these, speaking of the apostates, are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this morning, the message has two sharp divisions. And the first division or heading I want you to see is the apostate's conduct. The apostate's conduct. And built into the the fabric of this passage this morning are six word pictures that describe their conduct in a very detailed way. Now, just a quick word about word pictures. Word pictures have unbelievable power. For example, man, if you were on a business trip and you go to Alaska and you're there for several days and it is just colder than all get out. And you you call your wife and she says, honey, how's the weather? And you say, it's really chilly up here. Now, that's not going to say a whole lot to your wife. Let's say it's 40 degrees below zero and you say, honey, it's really chilly up here. That's not going to paint a word picture that is going to tug at the the emotional apron strings of your wife. But what would happen if you were to say, Honey, it's colder than an icebox. When I blow my nose, the snot comes out in icicles. (laughs) 
That's one I should have double-checked with my wife. Would it be okay to say that? <laughs> my snot comes out like icicles. Now, which word pitcher ha- ha- has more power? It's really chilly up here, or I blow snots of icicles. So you see this word picture that you can use in the English language has a great deal of effect on people. It, it has the power to generate emotion. Uh, the word picture I've given you generated laughter, right? It moves the will. It moves the heart. It moves the mind. And I believe that the author, Jude, uses word pictures in these verses to cement a series of images into the hearts and the minds of the first century Christians. These word pictures will rattle them and serve as vivid reminders of how dangerous and diabolical these false teachers are. Now look at these six word pictures with me that describe the the conduct of these false teachers. And notice how very dangerous and diabolical they are. The first is found in verse 12. Jude says, they are hidden reefs. If you have ever had the chance to to read the Christian Standard Bible. I, I love the Christian Standard Bible, by the way. I have a, a Spurgeon Study Bible. And I was a little disappointed when the Spurgeon Study Bible was published because they did it in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. And I was like, eh, why didn't they choose the ESV? Because that would have been my primary preaching Bible. Well, they chose the Christian Standard Bible. So I ordered it and I got it. I love it. The Christian Standard Bible translates this little Greek phrase as dangerous reefs. The ESV is hidden reefs, but I really like the CSB, dangerous reefs. It comes from a Greek word that means simply a submerged or reef that is underwater or near the surface of the water. Now, if you've ever been on the open sea, and I I grew up in Olympia and had a chance to fish dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times on the Puget Sound. And on the Puget Sound, there may not be an awful lot of reefs, but there are things that can impede the progress of a ship. And so you know if you hit something that is hidden in the water, it can cause great damage to your ship. Indeed, it can sink your ship. This is the way that these apostates operate, according to Jude. And this should not surprise you that he calls them dangerous reefs, given the fact that we learned in verse 4 previously that these false teachers, how did they come into the church? They snuck in. They, they slipped in under the radar. And if I can speak in terms of a, a 21st century evangelical, they slipped in and started teaching Sunday school. They slipped in the church and started teaching small groups and leading groups of people. They slipped into the church and they became deacons. They slipped into the church and they became elders. What is striking to me is that the first century believers didn't even know that they were dining with wolves. These false teachers, Jude says, feast with you without fear. The Christian Standard Bible says they feast with you without reverence. Literally, to be without fear, they pay no regard to God. They live without fear and they despise any accountability. That's the kind of person that we are faced with in this passage. And so let me provide a brief action step for you. And that is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we must always be aware of our surroundings. We must always be looking left. We must always be looking right. Every newspaper we read, every magazine we read, every book we read, every song we listen to, every conversation we have is we are called to be discerning. You remember in the book of 1 Kings, Solomon made this prayer. He offered this prayer to God. He said, God, please give me a discerning spirit. And that is a prayer that we should pray as believers. And some of you may think this, but I don't have the gift of discernment. I found that in the local church, very few people actually have the gift of discernment. However, even if you don't have the gift, you are still obligated to be a discerning believer. It works like this. How many of you have the gift of evangelism? One. So, raise a hand up, Kyle. Okay, two, two. So, 
Maybe we need to pray for more evangelists. You say, why isn't Christ Fellowship growing more? We need more evangelists, right? Many of you have the ability to come alongside and, and disciple and to exhort and to educate. We need more evangelists at this church. Now, we just learned that we have two evangelists, two, two men who have the gift of evangelism. Guess what? The rest of you are not, you're not off the hook. In fact, it might be more difficult for you because you don't have the gift of evangelism, but the Word of God tells us to go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. And so none of us are off the hook. And so we need to always be aware of our surroundings. And while we extend a a gracious and an open invitation to people that come to Christ Fellowship, to come to attend, and some who choose to become members of Christ Fellowship, we want to be very careful to guard that membership. That's why the elders meet with every new prospective member, and we listen to their story. We listen to their grace story. We We uncover what kind of a person were they before they came to Christ and how has God changed our lives now. We want to make sure that we have a regenerate membership here at Christ Fellowship. Well, there's the first word picture. These false teachers, these apostates are duplicitous. There's a second thing that Jude says in verse 12. He says, if you look at it with me, that they are shepherds. And you think, shepherds, what's bad about that? The word I have used here is devoted to self. These false teachers are devoted to themselves. And it's a fascinating Greek word that Jude uses. He uses the word that is normally translated as pastor. Pastor slash shepherd. But what we learn here is that it's only a ruse. These are not pastors. These are not bona fide shepherds. These shepherds in quotes, are only feeding themselves. And God warns the shepherds, the real shepherds, what appear to be real shepherds in the Old Testament. The book of Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You see, these false teachers, these apostates, they have no desire to feed the flock. Why? Because they're heretics. They're apostates. They're false teachers. They're not shepherds at all. They're devoted to one thing. Me, myself, and I. It's all about autonomy. And so as a practical action step for you and I, be on the lookout for shepherds who are only devoted to themselves. And you know what's one of the the amazing things about our church family is we have a group of shepherds and a group of, of elders. We have a group of deacons who are devoted to this church family. I wish you could see this group of men on their knees interceding for you. We come together and and we seek the face of God because they, first and foremost, love the living God. But they love the flock. They love you. And so we need to be beware of these false shepherds who only seek to feed themselves. Let me give, give you some examples. And I think it's appropriate to name names to make you aware. There's a man that you may have heard of by the name of Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar. Dollar is probably not the last name I'd want to have as a pastor, but I'm just saying. Here's what Creflo Dollar says. Quote, I'm going to say something. We are gods. Little G-O-D-S. In this earth. And it's about time we start operating like gods instead of a bunch of mere powerless humans. Close quote. Now, what do you have in a quote like this? You have a shepherd that's described in this passage. This is someone who's only interested in himself. One other pastor, Miles Monroe, told the TBN audience, quote, God cannot do anything in the earth without a human's permission. Close quote. Let me say that one more time, and I'll wait for the gasp. God cannot do anything in earth without a human's permission. Thank you. I mean, that quote should make, make your skin crawl. This is an example of someone who's out for himself. And one of the best examples of these so-called shepherds who are devoted to themselves are the so-called prosperity gospel preachers. One man writes, in assessing 
the prosperity movement. He says the prosperity gospel is spreading beyond the confines of the charismatic movement where it has been traditionally strong and is taking root in the larger evangelical church. A recent survey found that in the United States, 46% of self-proclaimed Christians agree with the idea that God will grant material riches to all believers who have enough faith. Close quote. Now he's saying that, criticizing it, that he sees that research has proven that almost half of Americans who name the name of Christ say that God will give it to me. He'll make me rich if I ask him. These people have been adversely affected by shepherds who are only devoted to one thing. Me, myself, and I. And this is what the word of God says. We do when we run into such a person. We run for the hills. We flee. There's another word that Jude uses. He moves from his first thought of these shepherds who are hidden reefs to shepherds who only think about themselves to the next verse where he says they're waterless clouds. And you say, what in the world is happening here? Waterless clouds. I use the word destitute. And the key word in the passage is the little phrase swept along. Waterless clouds swept along by the wind. That means they are driven off course. The apostates, you see, look like teachers who can offer you spiritual help. They boast of their abilities, but at the end of the day, in the final analysis, you realize they can't help you at all. Why? These apostates, according to Jude, they have taken the wrong path. They have been driven off course. They have walked away from the source of life. They have veered off course and every one of them have failed to heed the warning of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. Most of you know of my love for Pilgrim's Progress. Um, If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, go out and read it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon read it at least a hundred times before he died. And I think it is our responsibility as Christ followers in this generation to read it at least once. And I can tell you, if you read it once, you'll probably want to read it again. But in this amazing story, the number one seller, by the way, behind the Bible, historically, the character Christian meets formality and hypocrisy, who both decide to take the easy path. They take the easy roads, and one took the way that Bunyan calls danger, which led to a great forest. The other walked directly up the way to destruction, which led to a wide area, Bunyan says, of dark mountains where he stumbled and fell down, and he says, and he arose no more. Both of them fell and rose no more. And I just get the shivers when I read that passage in Bunyan's Pilgrim Pro- Pilgrim's Progress because I have known people over the course of my life who are like Mr. Formality and Mr. Hypocrisy and they think they're on the right path but in the, at the end of the day they realize they've taken the wrong path and you never hear from them again. You never hear from them again. A quick action step. Be prepared. Be prepared, I believe Jude argues here, to confront the enemies of the cross. Beware of those who abandon the narrow path and in turn justify their sinful behavior. One of my friends asked an incredible question this morning in the Veritas class that strikes uh, very close to this point. But have you noticed that... Oftentimes in our world, when someone gets off the path, the first thing they want to do is justify the path. Have you seen that? It doesn't matter if it's abortion on demand or the sin of homosexuality or garden variety carnality. Whenever a person gets off the path, the first thing you want to do is justify the path they're on. And so we need to be very careful that we, when we run into such a person, we are to admonish the enemies of the cross. We stay close as followers of Jesus Christ to 
the foot of the cross. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a fourth word picture I want you to see back in Jude. He says this, he says that they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead. These men, these apostates are dead. Those who teach and preach the word of God, myself included, have the responsibility of leading the flock, of feeding the flock, of loving the flock, of protecting the flock. But here's what we learn about these individuals. They have nothing to give. They are teaching from a vacuum. They are fruitless. They are rootless. And this is why... Jude refers to them as twice dead. What a contrast in Jude to what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor in the way of sinners, nor sits on the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. These are dead teachers. Fruitless trees without root. There's a fifth word picture. And I think you're getting the idea of what he's doing here. That these word pictures really, really stir up the first century Christians. And I trust they stir us up as well. Verse 13. He says, They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. I refer to this as men who are diabolical. You see, their character and their conduct is shameful. We've already learned their creed was shameful. Now we see their character and their conduct is shameful. And so Jude says, like the wild waves of the sea that cause havoc and distill fear, even even in the most seasoned sailor, so these apostates seek to damage and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. One commentator says, The true teacher of the word brings up the treasures of the deep, but the false teachers produce only refuse. And what they boast about, they really ought to be ashamed of. There's a final word picture that Jude uses at the end of verse 13. It's a fascinating one. He says they're wandering stars. I refer to this kind of person as the person who is deluded. Because the word wandering comes from a term that means a person who lives an unsettled life. These apostates, Jude says, are like wandering stars. They, they've been conned. They've been gypped. They've been tricked. They've been duped. They've been hoodwinked. And now they're taking their false variety of doctrine and passing it off as truth to the body of Christ, to the church of Jesus Christ. That's interesting because Jude here lays the groundwork for what is to follow in verses 14 to 16. Notice the the ultimate destination for these individuals who are categorized by these six word pictures. He says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so we have, looking last week, we saw the creed of the apostates. We have just examined their conduct, and I want to conclude this discussion by looking at their condemnation. That's the second heading, the apostates' condemnation. Now, the condemnation of the apostates should come as no shock to you. It should come as no surprise to you. First, you should realize that that God never tolerates sin. Have you learned that lesson? God never tolerates sin. God never whitewashes sin. God never puts a blanket over sin and says, that's okay, I'll I'll let you off the hook on that one. You see, this is the ongoing message of Scripture that God punishes sin. Let me give you three verses that show the progression. Verses that you're very aware of. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, and said, You shall surely eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam is a man who is accountable. He knew that when he took that fruit from his wife, that he was the leader of his wife. And he knew that if he ate from that fruit, the consequences were physical death and spiritual death. God promised that you would surely die. Move forward to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, where we read, The soul who sins shall die. I'm convinced that this is the way we need to do evangelism. You say, what are you talking about? Is we need to tell people lovingly and graciously that they have broken God's holy law. And in the day you do such a thing, you will surely die. You see, the evangelist needs to tell people in the marketplace of ideas that they have broken God's holy law and that they are in deep trouble. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is, help me, death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when we learn about the apostate's condemnation, by the way, the reason I'm kind of doing this sidebar is because the culture that we are a part of now, you hear even the word condemnation, like, I think I'll tie my shoe. I'm getting nervous. Condemnation. I don't want anyone to be condemned. I don't want anyone to face the wrath of God. I don't want anyone to go to hell. That's too uncomfortable. But we have to be aware that God can't whitewash sin. God takes sin seriously. The soul who sins shall die. So it shouldn't surprise us to hear that they will be condemned. Next, the apostate's condemnation should not surprise us because we've already isolated it in this letter. And so the argument I'm proposing is starting in Genesis chapter 2, moving to Ezekiel 18, moving forward to Romans 6, and there's many others. We see the framework for the wrath of God, that God will condemn the unbeliever. But now, the second reason we shouldn't be shocked to learn of their condemnation is we've isolated it here in the little book of Jude. Back to Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So we've already seen it. In Jude 5 through 7, Jude gives three examples, if you remember, how God judges the righteous. Unbelieving Israel, rebellious angels, and people who engaged in sexual immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. We concluded our time last week in in verse 11, where Jude says, and, and it should send chills throughout your body, woe to them. That word woe is a, comes from a Greek word that is a word that means denunciation or horror or grief. It's like the worst thing you could ever imagine. Woe to them. And so when we speak of the condemnation, that subject that some of us get nervous about, it's not a new subject. It's not a new subject. But here's what's interesting. Jude's not through. He's going to continue beginning in verse 14. Read it with me. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, that is, angels, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I want you to see two things about this condemnation here. First in verse 14, I want you to see, as we've already learned from Jude 4, that this is a prophesied condemnation. Their condemnation was not only prophesied in Jude 4 or referred to in verse 4, but it's also confirmed throughout the pages of Jude. Here we learn that Enoch 
prophesied that the ungodly would be judged. Now, I want to read something for you that some of you are are wondering about. Scholars believe that Jude may be citing from the apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch. Now, let me just, full disclosure, when I hear the word apocrypha, I get nervous. So this is not to say I'm speaking positively about the Apocrypha. I get nervous. It is not canonical. It's not part of the Word of God. However, this does not militate against the inspiration of Scripture any more than when the Apostle Paul cites from the pagan poets in Acts chapter 17. The basic idea, I believe here, is that Enoch prophesied the destruction of the ungodly. Now, notice a few things about this prophesied condemnation. First, their condemnation is very serious because the ungodly mock the judgment of God. But the day of reckoning is coming. It's very important that we understand this. I want to have you turn from Jude to the book of 2 Peter, just a few pages over. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we need to see this prophecy as it unfolds in Scripture. I want to read the whole thing, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up, up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. We've learned about these kind of individuals. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Have you ever had someone say that to you? You think Jesus is coming back? Give me a break, you nutty Christians. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now existed are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. You see, we need to remember that a day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. This is not only a prophesied condemnation. It is, as Jude 15 tells us, it is a comprehensive condemnation. And this is where it gets very uncomfortable for some people. Notice a few important points. We learn in verse 15 that the judgment of God will be unleashed, not on 50%, not on 90%, and not on 99.9%, but the judgment of God will be unleashed on all the ungodly. On all the ungodly. The word convict in verse 15 means to prove or to show a person to be guilty. So listen, on judgment day... There will be no hung juries. Sometimes Doreen and I, we and Nathan, we like to watch these police drama shows. And we like to watch even the, the real life ones. And I don't know about you, but what I'm thinking is, I hope at the... Because you know he's guilty, right? He's been convicted, right? And you think, there's going to be a technicality. He's going he's gonna to walk, right? Why is it always a he, by the way? She's going to walk, right? <laughs> or the... The attorney messed it up or the the police officer didn't read the Miranda rights. Whatever it is, he's going to walk. He's going to skate. I don't want that to happen. Or there's going to be a hung jury or there's going to be a technicality. On the final day, on the judgment day, there will be no hung juries. There will be no technicalities. There will be no stays of execution. There will be no acquittals. This is a comprehensive judgment. Second, I want you to see that they'll be judged for their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Revelation chapter 14, we won't, 
Well, let me read it. It really reveals the depth of God's hatred for sin. It says, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, we don't talk about a stadia anymore. I had to look it up. It's a, it's a Greek measurement that is somewhere between 607 and 630 feet. And so 16,000 stadia is between 180 and 190 miles. The state of Alabama is about 190 miles wide. And so here's what a friend of mine says to me. He says, according to Revelation 14... The blood flowing from the great, the great winepress of the wrath of God is as high as a horse's bridle and would stretch from one side of Alabama to the other. God hasn't gone soft on sin, writes my friend in the New Testament. He is the God of unchangeable holiness. Amen? Third, they will be judged for their harsh words that were spoken concerning Christ. And it's as if Jude piles on here. It's as, it's as if he wants to convince them of their final condemnation when he calls them grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The apostate's conduct is clear, and I believe the ultimate And final condemnation of the apostates is not only clear, but it is eminent. And this sobering passage, I believe, forces us into a corner and it forces us to seriously reflect. As I sat at my desk, as I sat in my study, I said to myself, how does this relate to Christ fellowship? What do we do with This subject of apostasy, how does it relate to us? And I concluded that there are at least three things that I, that I want you to leave with this morning. The first is this. I want you to make sure that you are responding rightly to the wrath of God. I want you to make sure as the first takeaway, the first challenge, the first reflection that you are responding rightly to the wrath of God. And here's what I mean. I talk to people all the time, as you might imagine, who are not responding rightly to the wrath of God. I reviewed a book about a year ago from an author that utterly repudiates the wrath of God. I reposted that view a few days ago. My, my dad got a hold of me and he said, oh, I read your view, son. Uh, you're going to get some emails about that one, right? Because I've learned that people are uncomfortable with the wrath of God. People despise the wrath of God. We need to make sure that we're responding rightly to the wrath of God. So never minimize the wrath of God. Never marginalize the wrath of God. One writer says that this way, those who look for eternal life and some other God and those who flat out reject the existence of God should be terribly afraid. God cannot and will not compromise with sin or sinners. He is patient and always oh, patient. But there will be an end to that divine patience. Unbelievers should dread that day. I believe it's our responsibility as Bible believing evangelical followers of Jesus, to tell people about that day. There's a second thing that I want you to reflect on. That is that every wrong will be made right in God's economy. When you learn about these apostates, and I I can tell you that when I read about the apostates in Jude, it irritates me to no end. It angers me to learn that false teachers have invaded the church. But remember this. Every wrong will be made right in God's economy. Either sin will be atoned for on the cross of Jesus Christ or it will be judged. There is no middle ground. Either sin will be atoned for on the cross or it will be judged. Brian Chapel says, All wrongs and injustices committed against God's people. Now I want to stop there and realize that some of you have been hurt by another human being. Someone has wounded you. 
Someone has defrauded you. Someone has slandered your good name. Someone may have hurt you physically. I want you to remember that every sin will be made right in God's economy. Chapel continues. He says, all wrongs and injustices committed against God's people will one day be avenged. God's children will be vindicated. We do not need to seek vengeance now. That means vigilanteism is out the window. We don't have to go after him. God will have the final say in these matters. For the sins of every believer were covered on the cross of Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him, namely Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Finally, I want you to reflect on this important thought that we need to rest in the gospel. We need to rest in the gospel. As you, you look at the chaos in this church in the first century, these are all things that we could face in our church. And I want to encourage you to rest in the gospel. Rest in the gospel because evil will be ultimately and finally vanquished. Death will be defeated. Rest in the gospel because Jesus promises to make everything new. Rest in the gospel because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rest in the gospel knowing that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all things. This morning, I received a message from a friend of mine. I I have the unique privilege and pleasure to have pastor friends all over America and indeed around the world, right? And that, that gives me the ability to encourage them and they have the ability to encourage me. Today, my friend Dave encouraged me and here's the text he sent me. James Montgomery Boyce said, it may be that through your preaching, you will reach one person for Christ that will reach their entire generation. I'm curious. Is that person here this morning? I'm curious. Is is it possible the next Luis Palau is here this morning? Is it possible the next Billy Graham's here this morning? Is it possible the next John Frames here this morning? Is it possible that the next William Carey is in this room? Because we have been sitting under the authoritative, infallible word of God. And I don't have the ability to do any of these things. But is it possible that through the, the preaching of the word of God... That a person or a group of people here at Christ Fellowship will be unleashed to plan a church someday, to start an organization someday, to build a hospital someday, to be an attorney someday, to be an athlete someday, where you impact the nations for the glory of God. May God find us faithful here in the place that He has planted us in Everson. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warning in this passage. We thank you for the challenge. And God, we want to be careful to uh, affirm everything in your word. God, we have learned for the past few weeks about the, the diabolical condition of these, these uh, apostates, these false teachers. We've learned today about their final condemnation. And I pray, God, that you would give us, first and foremost, a love for your word a love for the Savior, and that you would find us faithful, that as you give us opportunity, that you would enable us to to engage with people, to share with them the amazing mystery of the gospel. Thank you that there are so many faithful people here in this church. There are people that love your word. There are people who are committed to prayer. There are people committed to, to serving this flock and serving the community and I know I look forward to the days ahead where many things will happen that will glorify you, where many people will be saved, where many people will be edified and encouraged and equipped. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.